Hello, and welcome to PW's FaithCast, a podcast from Publishers Weekly. In each episode, we speak with authors who write about inspiration, spirituality, and religion. I'm Emma Winner, the Religion News Editor at Publishers Weekly. Today, I'm speaking with Robert Walgamuth, whose Lies Men Believe and the Truth That Sets Them Free is being published by Moody Publishers, the sponsor of today's FaithCast. Hello, Robert, and thanks for joining us. Well, it's great to be with you, Emma. Thank you. This is a privilege. So this is a companion to Lies Women Believe, which your wife, Nancy DeMoss Walgamuth, first published in 2001. That's right. Why write Lies Men Believe now? Well, uh, I've only been married to Nancy for, it's actually almost, tomorrow it'll be 33 months. Oh, congrats. And we, and we celebrate months, the 14th of every month. It's an anniversary card, a dinner, flowers, whatever good stuff. Because I was 67 and she was 57 when we got married. I had been married for almost 45 years and then lost my wife in 2014 to ovarian cancer. And actually Nancy and Bobby, my late wife's name, were friends. I represented Nancy as her agent in 2003, 2004. And so, um, and Nancy had never been married. So a couple months before Bobby stepped into heaven in 2014, she told two friends that she thinks Robert should marry Nancy Lee DeMoss. Oh, wow. But she never told me. So a couple months after Nancy and I began dating in 2015, those friends sent me emails and said, we think you ought to know something. So um, they said that Bobby said that she'd like for you to marry Nancy Lee DeMoss. So now Nancy and I are dating. We're both authors, uh, about 40 books between us. So I thought it would be really fun to meet Nancy by reading her books. So I read Lies Women Believe, along with a million other folks who have read that book. It sales in, in excess of a million copies. So this was really my, I'd, I'd known her professionally, but didn't know her personally. So this was a great way to get to know this lady. Right. So during the months that we were dating, she said, you know, one of the things that I've really wondered about and really hoped for would be a men's counterpart to the book Lies Women Believe. And I said, well, hmm, that sounds like a really good idea. <laughs> so as we talked, she eventually said, well, if you'd be willing to take a shot at Lies Men Believe, I'd love to do that with you. So the with you part is that they parallel each other closely in terms of the general outline. They're very different. But I took a shot at it and shared the outline with her, the 40 lies. She took part in narrowing it down to 40. And then she's a great editor. So I had the joy of having my wife be my editor. I don't know if you've ever done this or any of our friends listening know the experience of their mate being their editor. But it's, it's, a, it's a lot of fun and it can be a real challenge. I mean, like... Okay, so have you ever had your mate, your spouse, play doubles tennis with you on the same side? So she's my editor. She's an amazing editor. She's brilliant. She knows words. She knows theology. And um, she knows, of course, the subject of this book because she's the author of Lies Women Believe. 
So that's a long answer to a very simple question. But I put my hand in the air and said, I would love to write the sequel to Lies Women Believe. Can you talk a little bit about your background and, and how it helped you in writing this book? Sure. Um, I've been actually in the publishing business for 40 plus years. I actually have an undergraduate degree in Bible literature and then have some graduate work, have written over 20 books, but I've never wanted to lose my amateur status. Um, my favorite thing really to do in this space is teach Sunday school. I know that sounds really archaic, but that's my favorite thing. It's, um, it's like the, the uh, Kierkegaard, the great Swiss theologian, tells a story about the clown on the bicycle. So there's a circus in town, and they're setting up on the hill. Somebody knocks over a lamp, a prairie fire starts, and it heads toward the city. And so this clown, in makeup, jumps on a little bicycle and rides into town. He's riding up and down the street, and he's hollering, there's a fire coming, there's a fire coming. And all the children gather on the, on the curb, and they're laughing, and it's a clown, and people are having fun. And then there's a guy on the sidewalk standing next to his friend. He looks over his shoulder, he sees the smoke, and he says, hey, there's a fire coming, and everybody scatters. And I think sometimes the professionals whether it's in religion or law or whatever, sometimes are put into a box. People say, well, you're, you know, you're a professional, you're a preacher, you're a whatever. Uh, and I'm just a layman on the sidewalk. So I've had the joy of just saying to friends, to colleagues, to buddies, to folks standing on the sidewalk with me, hey, here's the story. Here's what I've experienced. Here's a result of my study as a layperson. And I, I never want to lose that status. I've been asked, you know, to do weddings and whatever. I don't. I'm just a guy, just a normal guy on the sidewalk. And what are some of the lies that men and women believe? Well, um, that's the, the reason why that's an important question is that there are some that are very similar and some that are very different. The book is structured like lies women believe. So the major sections are lies men believe about God, lies men believe about themselves, lies men believe about sin, lies men believe about sexuality, about marriage and family, about work and wealth, about circumstances, and about the world. Those are similar to the lies women believe major sections. But actually, the biggest difference, Emma, is something I talk about in the very beginning. It's called Chapter One Foundations. It's a framework that I think helps readers to understand the biggest difference between men and women when it comes to lies and deception. Lies Men Believe arrives in the Me Too era or this movement where sexual misconduct and harassment against women is being recognized and condemned. All kinds of professional environments have reported it. Um, what guidance can your book offer when it comes to this sort of issue, this Me Too movement? Well, the, the section that I guess I would turn to would be um, 
It's actually called Chapter 5, Lies Men Believe About Sexuality. And really, it's the whole Me Too movement is about sexuality, but it's also about power. And something I talk about a lot is the need for humility in men. You know, I think men are guilty of competing and comparing when there really isn't a game to play. And so in situations where, and this is the most tragic of all, where you're talking about Christian leaders, pastors, rabbis, priests, CEOs, managers, who are dealing unfairly with women under their charge. And because of their position of power, women go along with it because they're hoping that this will help their status, help their situation. And of course, it's tragic. It turns sour on them, and it should. You know, the the joy of working alongside with my wife, who's incredibly bright and accomplished, she's actually sold more books than I have. She's up to like three million, and I'm just over two, so I'm schlocky. But is to have a sounding board who really understands the peril of the Me Too movement. In fact, she leads a women's ministry called Lies. I mean, she leads a women's ministry called Revive Our Hearts. So this whole thing is very near and dear to her. Um, so I don't, I don't use the hashtag Me Too in the book at all. But my, if if I were sitting across a cup of coffee with a man who's in a position of leadership or power, or speaking to a convention of men, I would plead with them for, I would call it holiness, that is, walking the talk, that is, it's not just good enough to say that you're a person of integrity, that you're a person of high moral character, but that you would be that person. I would also challenge men in terms of what they expose themselves to, terms of pornography or salacious input that because the mind has a hard time separating fantasy from reality, a man can put himself into a situation through those mediums that can absolutely freeze him up, paralyze him, kill him, strangle him. And so um, that's what I would say. That sounds really Victorian. Even saying it, I'm thinking, yeah, right. Okay, so go ahead. Welcome to the 21st century, Robert. Well, over the years of counseling men who have gotten into horrible situations, I would say it starts with self-discipline. It starts with developing a character of righteousness and, as I said, holiness, where you say no to bad things and yes to good things. And you do it on a regular, daily, hourly basis. Why did you include your own imperfections and sins, even the lies you have believed? Well, really, Emma, I don't know what else to do in a book than include my own account, what I have dealt with in my own life. This is, um, this is not a textbook. It's a trade book. Uh, this is not an encyclopedia. It's a conversation. This is me saying to the reader, you know what? I understand. So when when we're looking at at uh, a lie like um, 
if I mean well, that's good enough. Or I don't need men friends. I don't need other buddies. Or here's one. Holiness is boring. <laughs> you know, that is... Um, uh, th- those are the kinds of things that I've dealt with myself. And, um, you know, or I have sexual needs my wife can't fulfill. Um, all of those things, I'm, I'm not standing at a lectern. I'm not pointing my finger. I'm pouring another cup of coffee for my buddy across the table. And I'm saying, here's why this is in this book. It's because I live here too. This is, this, is, this is a guy standing next to his friend and saying, look, this is the way I see it too. So I want to be a safe place, but I also want to be a truth teller. So those two things in combination, my hope is that lies men believe accomplish both of those things. What is the most important thing you want readers to take away from the book? Boy, the most important thing that I want a reader to take away from this is um, daring to speak truth to himself. Um, This probably isn't a new phenomenon, but self-deception is um, a very easy thing to fall into, but it's also a perilous thing. If I'm not able to be honest with myself, everybody else is in trouble. My wife is in trouble. My children are in trouble. My co-workers, colleagues are in trouble. If I'm a man who isn't willing, as hard as it might be, to speak truth to himself, then that's a man who's in trouble. And so that's my hope. My hope is that readers read this book. A, they embrace my transparency. They believe me when I say I want to be your friend and come alongside. And then they step out and, and dare to tell themselves the truth about how they think and what they do and about their relationships, their fears and anxieties, as well as the good things in their life. So my hope is that these readers will become comfortable, finally maybe, to speak truth to themselves and then live the truth on their own, on their own account with their families, with their co-workers, with their children, and with themselves. That's my hope. Robert, thank you so much for joining us. Also, thank you to the audience for listening, and join us for the next FaithCast.